Good morning, everybody. How are y'all doing? Excellent. It is my pleasure to welcome you here again to LifeSpring. Thank you guys for showing up today, and thank you all for everyone on Facebook Live. Uh, unfortunately, you don't get the pleasure of having Greg McCormick here to teach you today, but uh, I'm his uh, backup as he is still recovering from surgery. So, <laughs> well, thank you. Uh, one quick note, someone has a black Hyundai Sonata uh, license plate GBA532. Parking lights are on outside. I would hate for you guys to walk out there and not have your car be able to start when we, uh, when we dismiss from here today. So, if you would, open up your Bibles today. Mark 15 is our passage. Mark 15, verses 1 through 15, and today, you're going to have to buckle in, because we've got a lot of scripture to go through. Today, we are in the passage of Mark, in our series on the servant king, where we are going to talk about Jesus being delivered over to the authorities in preparation for his crucifixion. So last, a couple weeks ago, Greg talked about the religious trial that went on. He talked about Jesus before the high priest. He talked about the trial that went on by night. And today we're going to continue that passage as we continue this narrative. So there is one key point I want you to take away from this. One key point, and that is, that though tried by both Jewish religious courts and by the Roman civil courts, Jesus was found to be blameless and guiltless. Though he was tried in both the Jewish religious court and by the Roman civil court, Jesus was found to be blameless and guiltless. And we'll talk about why that is important. So if you noticed, there were handouts that Mike handed out to you on your way in, and I want to explain the handout that I gave to you real quick. As I was going through studying this passage of Scripture, I realized that many of us know that there are four Gospels that document the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. And in the Gospels, there are four different accounts of what happened during this period of time. So what I tried to do today, it took a lot of time, but what I tried to do today was to give you a, a narrative, a timeline of what happened during this period of time, during this, uh, this trial. And I tried to bring all four Gospels together and give you kind of a timeline of what I think happened, the order of the sequence of events that happened from the beginning at the top of the page to the end. So it looks like it kind of jumps back and forth on some of them, but that is because I wanted to show you what happened in each gospel so that you could tell where I think it kind of fell together. Now, we don't have a good um, factual or uh, a good timeline. Hey, this happened at 732 in the morning. This happened at 735. We don't have that given to us, but we see as we read through the gospels, the sequence of events. So what I tried to do is give you what I think is a logical sequence of events that explains the events that happened around Jesus's trial before Pilate, and, um, and then on to uh, him being delivered over to be crucified. So, as I said two weeks ago, Greg finished his sermon kind of talking about 
the kangaroo court that was convened in order to try Jesus before the religious uh, the religious officials, the Jewish leaders, what they called the whole council. And as Greg said that, it kind of came to my mind, what does kangaroo court really mean? You guys ever wondered that? I, I didn't know it, so I went and looked at Google. And Google told me that what the kangaroo court, what that term came from was that back in the old American West, there used to be no civil magistrates that were out there that were stabilized in certain cities or, or provinces or whatever. So what happened was is that you had... Uh, you had judges that would essentially ride on horseback to these different places, and they were more concerned about seeing how many trials or how many, uh, how many cases they could uh, preside over than they were about actual justice. They wanted to see their numbers, so they just hopped from place to place just to see how many trials that they could finish up and get and get over with. So that's where the term, the kangaroo court, much like a kangaroo hops from place to place, they would hop from place to place, not caring about true justice. All they cared about was seeing how many they could, uh, how, the, how many uh, trials they could finish. So that's the, uh, that's the term kangaroo court. And so we see now that this kangaroo court is over and Jesus, according to the Jewish leaders, is He's guilty of something, but they didn't really ever come to a true determination of why he was guilty. They couldn't bring anyone together to say, you are guilty of this or you're guilty of this. They had these false witnesses that came up and said, you're, he did these things, but they couldn't corroborate any evidence to really pin it down. So today we're going to walk through the fact that now that they've finished their trial, morning has come and they're going to take Jesus before Pilate. So Mark 15, 1 through 15, if you would stand as we read the word of God. Mark 15, 1 through 15, and it says, As soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. They bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered, You have said so. And the chief priest accused him of many things, and Pilate asked him again, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison was, uh, who had committed murder and insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, then what shall I do with this man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. May the Lord bless the reading and hearing of his word. Lord God, as I, as I stand here in front of this crowd, as we are here today seeking to 
understand your truth. I ask you that you would put my words away, that you would remove any distractions that I would bring and that anything else would bring and that your truth would be made known. Lord God, we seek to glorify you today as we are here and we pray that you would be honored in this time and that your truth would be made known. Open up our hearts to what you have to say to us, God, and let us know how we can live in closer relationship with you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So, after the kangaroo court convened, Jesus is brought to Pilate. Now, there's a significance that I don't want to skip over that Greg alluded to two weeks ago, that the trial was done by night. The religious trial was done by night. You see, the chief priests and the elders and the scribes, they didn't want the rest of the Jews to know what they were doing by night. That's why they held the trial at night. They didn't want them to see how they would wrongly try Jesus. And Greg talked about that a little bit. You see, their motive to kill Jesus drove the judicial proceedings that happened. Instead of letting the judicial process try to come to a a semblance of the truth or an understanding of the truth, they let their own motives drive what they did and how they tried Jesus. Whereas our our judicial system, the goal of it is to try to have a set due process, a set way to have a trial in order to come to what the actual truth is. They let their feelings, their motives, their desires, their hatred for Jesus determine how they tried him. And obviously, if you have a preconceived notion of what you want to happen, you're going to drive the trial in whatever way you want in order to come to your idea of what justice is and, and, or your conviction that you want. See, the whole premise of this trial was a lie. The whole premise of Jesus' trial was a lie. And Greg discussed that there are some limitations that the Jews had on executing Jesus. You see, there was a religious holiday going on. There was a lack of evidence. There was a lack of multiple witnesses. And according to Jewish law, you had to have corroborating evidence in order to uh, murder, or excuse me, not murder, in order to kill someone, in order to execute someone. You had to have the witness of at least two people, and they couldn't even come to that. So what do they do? The Jews, unable to punish Jesus by themselves, what do they do? They take him to Pilate. Why did they take him to Pilate? Well, we'll get to that. You see, Pilate was living in the upper area of Jerusalem, in kind of the higher uh, area where all the wealthy people, where all the religious leaders, where all the political leaders would live. So Jesus is brought to Pilate, and the first thing that happens we realize that if this was the threshold of Pilate's house, the Jewish leaders are going to bring Jesus up and they're going to kind of throw him in there. They're going to talk to Pilate outside of this because they didn't want to, during this time, make themselves ceremonially unclean. So as we're having this discussion, realize that Pilate is inside and he is questioning Jesus and he's talking to him. And then he will go back out and he'll talk to the religious leaders. He'll talk to the chief priests and the elders. So there's kind of two different areas that this story is going on 
So kind of keep that in your mind as we're going through this to kind of build a picture. Pilate asked him, why are you bringing Jesus here? Why bring him here? You guys have your own way of trying people. You have your own way to punish people. Why bring him here? He already knew that something was up. Otherwise, they wouldn't have brought Jesus there. The Jewish leaders, how did they respond? We get from John's gospel that he says, well, we wouldn't have brought Jesus here unless he was doing some sort of evil. Pilate's like, listen, I'm not worried about people doing evil stuff. That's a moral law. That's something that you guys preside over, not me. I've got a Roman law that I am in charge of upholding. So you take him and try him by yourself. That's what he told him. Jesus said, or Pilate said, go away and try him yourself. See, Pilate is obviously not worried about the, the religious laws, which is partly why they brought Jesus to him. Building a picture here of what that looks like. The Jewish leaders come back and they claim with claims that are somewhat under Pilate's jurisdiction. They come with false accusations against Jesus that would try to make Pilate take notice of what's going on. What are the three things that they bring up? This is accounted for in Luke's gospel. They say that Jesus is guilty of misleading the nation. They say that he's guilty of forbidding paying tribute to Caesar. And then they say that he's guilty of claiming to be the Christ, a king. So notice, these are three things that are obviously not true as we understand the gospel. In fact, when you look back and you take even one of them, forbidding paying tribute to Caesar, that's not what Jesus said at all. He said, give to Caesar what's Caesar's, but give to God what is God. And they twisted that and said, well, if Jesus is saying, give what is God to God's, and that means he's saying, don't give everything to Caesar. So they come and they create this false accusation of saying, he's saying, don't give things to Caesar. And claiming to be the Christ, the king, that would be the one that would perk up Pilate's ears. Because what does that mean? Pilate would think there's only one king, and that's Caesar, right? There's one king. So for a person to come claiming that they are a king would mean that there is a threat to the leadership. Not only his personal leadership, but to the Roman Empire as a whole. So now Pilate starts to take notice. See, these accusations, it's also funny when you look at this, these accusations weren't brought up during the religious trial. When you look back and read through all the accounts of of Jesus before the high priest, none of these were brought up, except for one, kind of. The only thing that was brought up in the religious trial was they asked Jesus, are you the Christ? And he said, you say it so, or you say it is so. He didn't even admit to it himself. He said, you're the one that's saying that, not me. So that is the only one, and so it's obvious, it's the only accusation they brought up that was kind of what happened before. It's obvious that they're making up these accusations just to try to pin something on Jesus in front of Pilate. <clears throat> so Pilate sees their real motives. He's not, a, he's not a dumb man. 
He's, he's really smart. He knows what he's doing. He sees their motives, and he sees that they were envious of the authority that Jesus spoke with and the power in which Jesus acted with. Pilate understood this. He understood that they were coming to him with false motives. So Pilate's response to them is, he tells them to go away and judge Jesus by their own law. He says, you go do this on your own. I, I don't want to involve myself in this. <clears throat> so what did the Jews say? John's Gospel tells us again that they say, well, it's illegal for us to put people to death. Well, we know that's not true. That's obviously not true. If you read through the Old Testament, if you read through the law, you understand that it is not against the law for the Jews to put people to death. It's not completely untrue, though. See, during, like we talked about during some portions of the year, in order to prevent themselves from becoming ceremonially unclean and being able to participate in the religious festivals, they would not be able to do these things. That was obvious. So, remember I spoke during my Advent message a couple weeks ago, maybe a month ago now, wow, time's flying, that in the case of adultery, we talked about in the, in the situation with Mary, as she was um, being discovered for being pregnant after being away for multiple months away from her husband, and she comes back, or her betrothed, she comes back and she's pregnant now, what would that, what would she be guilty of? She'd be guilty of adultery. If they decided to try her, she would be stoned according to the Jewish law. So it was obvious that they weren't really saying that it was illegal for them to, um, to kill someone. They were trying to twist the truth in order to get Pilate to handle their dirty work. The other one that is obvious that we've seen multiple times is that if you blaspheme the name of Yahweh, the name of God, that was immediate grounds for being stoned. So you would see that, and we see that happen in the Old Testament, um, of people who blaspheme the name of God, of people who uh, defamed things that were holy and set apart, like the Ark of the Covenant, they would be immediately put to death, sometimes miraculously by God, sometimes by the men of Israel and women of Israel putting them to death by stoning them. So the question comes up, why not just stone Jesus? If they are claiming that he was the Christ, the Messiah, and they didn't believe that, then he would be grounds for blasphemy. Why not stone him? So we'll get to that. Still building the picture. All right. So then we see that Pilate begins to question Jesus. Notice during all of these accusations before, if you read through the four Gospels, Jesus doesn't respond to any of the accusations that are based on anything false. He doesn't say a word. But then Pilate starts questioning him. And what does he question him with? He says, are you the king of the Jews? In all of this, Pilate's amazed that Jesus doesn't respond to him to any of the accusations. The one thing he does ask him is, are you the king of the Jews? You see, if you and I were being accused of something wrongly, we would want to defend ourselves, right? We would want to make a case. No, that's not true. That's not how it happened. These are the facts. This is what really happened. We'd want to make a defense for ourselves, but Jesus doesn't. He doesn't make a defense at all. Why not? Why doesn't he make a defense on the account that 
they said he was guilty of misleading the nation. That's not true. Why wouldn't you say, no, that's not what I did. In fact, I told people that they're supposed to love their enemies. Even if you don't like what Caesar's doing, you're supposed to love him. You're supposed to respect authorities. These are all things Jesus taught. Why wouldn't he defend himself? You see, Jesus didn't defend himself in this because he knew his fate. He knew not just his fate, he knew what God's will was for himself. Started in the garden of Gethsemane when he sat there and submitted himself to God and said, God, let your will be done. And it continues on now. He was completely and utterly surrendered to the will of God and said, God, you know what? I know your plan that you have and it involves me being crucified. It involves me being killed for something I didn't do. But I know that your plan is better than anything that could be cooked up by me, any idea that I could have. This is your plan, and I'm going to surrender to your plan and follow through with it. That's why he didn't defend himself. Because even though it was false, even though the accusations were a lie, he knew that it had to be this way in order to get him to the cross. He knew what the end was, and he knew how he had to get there, and he was willing to surrender that, even if it meant being wrongly accused, even if it meant not standing up for what the truth is in this case. But where does Jesus stand up for the truth? See, Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? And what does Jesus say to him? He says, you've said it so. He says, do you say this of your own account? And we're reading this from John 18, starting in verse 33 now. He says, do you say this of your own accord or did others say this about me? Pilate retorts, am I a Jew? Your own nation and your chief priest delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus gets to the heart of the matter and says, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would be fighting for me. But my kingdom is not of this world. So Pilate says, aha, so you are a king. Because remember, that's what Pilate cares about, right? He cares about someone trying to subvert the kingship of Caesar and subvert his own authority within uh, Jerusalem. Jesus doesn't miss a beat, though. He says, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born And for this purpose I entered the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone who is on the side of truth listens to my voice. And how does Pilate respond? What is truth? You see, now we get to the true reason why the Jewish leaders brought Jesus to Pilate. Pilate wasn't caring about the truth. He didn't care. Pilate cared absolutely nothing about the truth unless it was going to benefit himself. Unless it was going to increase his power. Unless it was going to give him some type of uh, good, uh, good standing in front of the Roman officials. He didn't care about what truth really was. He cared about what benefited himself. And that's why, and the Jewish leaders knew that, and that's why they brought him, brought Jesus to him. That is exactly why that happened. So we see Pilate's real character. 
All he cares about at this point is trying to stop the mob that is growing and the discontent that is growing in the mob outside his door. But at the same point, he doesn't find anything that Jesus is guilty of. So after all of this, he walks outside and what does he say? I find nothing wrong with this man. I don't find any guilt in him at all. So the chief priests and the Pharisees, what do they do? They try to hurl more insults. They try to hurl more accusations on him. And, they find, and the pilot finds out that he's a Galilean. He's like, hold on, hold on one sec. Galilee is outside of my jurisdiction. I'm not governor over Galilee. I'm, I'm over Jerusalem. That belongs to Herod. You, you go see Herod first, because if I try you now, then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ruffle Herod's feathers. So he sends the chief priest and the elders and the scribes and Jesus over to Herod. Now, Galilee's a long trip, so good thing Herod was in Jerusalem at this time. See, God orchestrated all this out beforehand. This wouldn't have normally happened, but this trial happened right in the middle of the festival, right in the middle of this Passover time frame. And so Herod was in Jerusalem. Why? Because probably most of his people in Galilee were in Jerusalem as well in order to offer sacrifices, to go to the temple and things like that, to worship in the temple. So Herod was there as well. He was probably just down the street from wherever this all happened, sitting in his own palace that was, uh, you know, VRBO that they had back then or something, that he was out there just chilling, enjoying the festivities. And so the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, they all go to see Herod now to try to get Herod to accuse him of something because he's a Galilean. He belongs to his jurisdiction. So what, and Herod, when he hears about this, he's like, great, I've been wanting to see Jesus. This is the guy that does all those miracles. This is the guy that has all that power that we don't understand. And on top of that, he teaches with authority. So I want to ask him some questions. I want to see him do some stuff. So they deliver him over to Herod, probably the same thing door here, Herod inside, throw Jesus inside and wait outside until they see what happens. Jesus goes in there and they start asking him questions. Jesus says nothing. Nothing at all. Makes no response in defense for himself. So what happens next? Herod and his guards and his, the Roman legion that was assigned to him, they start ridiculing him. They start disgracing him. They start, they don't, it doesn't show any physical abuse, but they probably slapped him a few times and things like that just to disgrace him. And then they realize, you know what, they're not going to get anything out of him. So they humiliate him even more by throwing nice clothes on him, dressing him up like a king that he was claiming to be, allegedly. And they send him back to Pilate. And because of this interaction that happens, Pilate and Herod, the Bible says, they become friends after that time. Before, they were, there was some sort of enmity between them, but now because Pilate recognized the jurisdiction and the authority of Herod over his own people, they become friends. We see it's all about them trying to build power and, and build those relationships with each other. They don't actually care about what, what truth is really going on. So, Jesus comes back to Pilate now. 
And Pilate receives the word probably from an emissary or something like that from Herod that Herod found nothing wrong with him, nothing of guilt, nothing worth crucifixion. So Pilate steps out in front of the chief priests and the elders and he starts to see this crowd building up and says, I, I find no guilt in this man. And neither did Herod. Can't find anything to make this guy guilty. So you know what I'll do just to appease you is I will punish him and then I'll send him back out. Like, the crowd's like, no, that's not what's going to happen. They said, no, that's, do not do that. They want some sort of judgment. They want something to, they're trying to condemn Jesus. So Pilate comes up with this idea, and the Jews knew of this custom, because during this time of the year, what would happen is that they would release someone who was in prison. Someone who maybe was taken for political reasons or some other petty crime. They would release them out just to try to show uh, that Pilate was a benevolent man, that he cared about the Jewish people. So what did he do? Well, Pilate says, you know what? I know this Jesus guy is innocent. So I'm going to try to stack the favor or stack the books in favor of Jesus by offering up a person that they won't accept. There's no way that they will accept this prisoner. This Barabbas. You know what? I'll give them the option of Jesus or Barabbas. Now, why Barabbas? Well, what was Barabbas convicted of? He mounted an insurrection and murder. We've got some Bible scholars in here, some people I know their word. That's awesome. Insurrection and murder. So the murder honestly, is not the reason why that Barabbas is the option that they wouldn't accept. It's really the insurrection. So think about this. Why would releasing a person guilty of insurrection be something that'd be so unfavorable to the Jews? Who was in charge of them right now? The Romans have occupied Jerusalem. They've occupied this whole region. They are living within the Roman Empire. So whatever sense of autonomy they have, is only as far as the Romans are allowing them to have. So an insurrectionist would be trying to overthrow the Roman Empire, would be trying to kick the Romans out. So for them to say, we want an insurrectionist instead of Jesus, would be directly against the Romans. It'd be saying that we want someone who has already demonstrated that they are against you, and we're willing for them to try to do that again. We're willing for them to try to overthrow you. And what would that mean? They were basically saying that we're willing for our autonomy, our sense of identity to be, to be thrown away if the Romans were to come in and squash this rebellion because that's probably what would have happened. If another insurrection would have risen up, the Romans would easily bring in the legion, kill all the people, and then take it over for themselves and institute no more Jewish uh, no more Jewish state, no more Jewish um, practice, religious practices. They would have to fall directly under Rome. They were, they were allowed to operate with their own autonomy, but it was very delicate. It was a very delicate balance. So that's why the fact that they said Barabbas instead of Jesus is such a big deal. It's not a small thing for them to just say, hey, give us Barabbas instead even though he was a murderer, even though he's an evil person, that's, that's, that's little. What the big picture is, is that they were saying that we don't want our own kingdom, 
that God has established for us. And that continues on as we, as we go. You see, as <clears throat> what, what I kind of see happening is that Pilate gives them this option. All right, do you want me to deliver for you Barabbas or Jesus? He says, you guys deliberate on that. Think about that for a second. I'll come back to you in a, in a little while. And then while they are deliberating on this or talking about it, then a messenger from his wife comes, from Pilate's wife, and she says, don't have anything to do with this righteous man, Jesus, because I was greatly tormented in a dream because of him. Don't, do, don't get on that side. Just stay out of it completely. Pilate's like, wow, this is, there's something else going on here that I don't want to be part of this. But he's not strong enough character to just do what is right. So what does he do? He comes back out and says, all right, what'd you guys choose? Thinking that maybe they'll choose Jesus. He said, release for us Barabbas. Give us Barabbas. He's like, whoa, that's, that didn't go how I planned it. Uh, what am I going to do now? He says, what do you guys want me to do with him then? What's their response? Not just crucify him. It's crucify him. Crucify him. That's what they want. Pilate goes over, washes his hands of this, symbolizing that the guilt is off our hands. In fact, he says it specifically. He says, I wash my hands of this man's guilt, of his blood. And what do the Jews respond with? His blood be on us and on our children. They're taking full responsibility of it. But that doesn't absolve what Pilate did. Pilate was not a courageous man. He had the opportunity to do what was right after seeing that this man had no guilt. He couldn't find anything wrong with him to convict him under the Roman law. But he was cowardly because he cared more about his seat of power and squashing this mounting mob out there and trying to put them down quietly than to do what is right. So, he delivers him over to being crucified. And that's the end of the narrative today. So here's some points I want you to consider. I came up with three points that I want you to consider about today's passage. The first one is a fairly obvious one, I hope, is that Jesus' trial and the findings uncovered point to his deity. You see, the fact that though he was tried in both the religious and Jewish courts, or the religious Jewish courts and the Roman civil courts, he was found guiltless. There was nothing to pin against Jesus that he was guilty of, of in either the Jewish law or the Roman law. Nothing worthy of death. Nothing worthy of any punishment whatsoever. This points to the deity of Christ. It points to the fact that he was perfect, that he fulfilled the whole law. No one could do that but Jesus. <clears throat> you see, they, they, the Jewish leaders, wanted to manipulate the truth. They were just like Pilate. What is truth? Truth is whatever we make it. 
We've determined that our version of truth is that we don't like this Jesus guy, so we want him out. We want him to be out of our lives because he tells us everything that's wrong with us. and We don't like that. So we want him gone. We see Pilate didn't care about the truth either. The truth is, is that Jesus was guiltless. He was spotless. He was perfect. The second point is, is that Jesus, because he was perfect, was the perfect atonement. He was the spotless blood or spotless lamb whose blood was shed. He never broke the law. He never sinned. He never did anything that could have been convicted under the civil or Roman, or the Jewish law, the religious or the civil law, nothing. He was the perfect atonement. The third point, which fits right in line with that, is that this spotless lamb is your one and only option, your one and only path to God. If you are a believer, you find perfect joy in that. First Peter reminds us of this. He says, For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. You see, everything that Jesus did, every point of his life, was to point us to God. Everything he did. The fact that he didn't defend himself in trial, even though he's being wrongly accused, points us to God. Because he knew that even if I take a beating myself, even if I'm tortured, even if I'm killed, if it points people to God, it's worth it. Jesus knew that. Do you? Do you understand that same truth? Do you understand that even if you give everything away or everything is taken from you, if it brings God more glory, it's worth it. Even if you lose your standing in life, even if you lose your job, even if you lose all your possessions, if it points people to Christ and points people to God, it is worth it. You guys understand that? I'm not saying that it's coming from a position where I even think I fully believe that or practice that in my life. That's something I know that God is working on my heart. By God's grace in the sanctification process, I hope that I do fully believe that and can come to that. So I'm not coming from a position of, of that I'm better than you. This is coming from a position of humility because this is the same lesson that God has been teaching me. If you believe that, if you believe that today, are you willing to commit to make your actions in alignment with that? That's not a question I can answer for you. That's not something that I expect you to say out loud right here. That's something that you have got to take to God and have God work out his spirit in you in that.
you would stand with me. Lord God, this is not an easy passage to go through today because of the implications it has on our lives. This is not a a feel-good passage. This is not something that we honestly, frankly, want to hear because it points to our sin and points to us to investigate ourselves. And you remind us, God, that we need a Savior. We need that Jesus that we talked about today to be our atonement, to be our perfect, spotless lamb. Because we can't do it on our own. We fail over and over and over again. God, we need you. Thank you for your word today. Thank you that though we read passages like this that remind us of the evilness of human nature, we are reminded constantly of the God that we serve as well. The God who loves us. The God who is willing to give himself up completely for our sins. Thank you, Lord, for your word. I pray that every person in here heard from your spirit today about what you wanted them to take away from this and what you want them to do about it. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.